We're continuing our reading of the Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita in the Adi Lila, where we left off just recently. I think it was Wednesday. And here we are. Uh, in the first chapter, text number 53. Prior to the cosmic creation, only I exist and no phenomena exist, either gross, subtle, or primordial. After creation, only I exist in everything, and after annihilation, only I exist eternally. Purport. <clears throat> Aham means I. Therefore, the speaker who is saying Aham, I, must have his own personality. The Mayavadi philosophers interpret this word Aham as referring to the impersonal Brahman. The Mayavadis are very proud of their grammatical knowledge. But any person who has actual knowledge of grammar can understand that a hum means I and that I refers to a personality. Therefore, the personality of Godhead speaking to Brahma uses a hum while describing his own transcendental form. A hum has a specific meaning. It is not a vague term that can be whimsically interpreted. A hum, when spoken by Krishna, refers to the Supreme Personality of Godhead and nothing else. Before the creation and after its dissolution, only the Supreme Personality of Godhead and his associates exist. There is no existence of the material elements. This is confirmed in the Vedic literature. Vasudeva va idam agra asinna brahma na cha shankaraha. The meaning of this mantra is that before creation, there was no existence of Brahma or Shiva, for only Vishnu existed. Vishnu exists in his abode, the Vaikuntas. There are innumerable Vaikuntha planets in the spiritual sky, and on each of them Vishnu resides with his associates and his paraphernalia. It is also confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita that although the creation is periodically dissolved, there is another abode which is never dissolved. The word creation refers to the material creation because in the spiritual world everything exists eternally and there is no creation or dissolution. The Lord indicates herein that before the material creation, he existed in fullness with all transcendental opulences, including all strength, all wealth, all beauty, all knowledge, all fame, and all renunciation. If one thinks of a king, he automatically thinks of his secretaries, ministers, military commanders, palaces, and so on. Since a king has such opulences, one can simply try to imagine the opulences of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. When the Lord says Aham, therefore, it is to be understood that he exists with full potency, including all opulences. The word yet refers to Brahman, the impersonal effulgence of the Lord. In the Brahma Sanghita 540, it is said, Tad Brahman Nishkalam Anantam Asheshabhutam. The Brahman effulgence expands unlimitedly, just as the sun is a localized planet with the sunshine expanding unlimitedly from that source. So the 
So the absolute truth is the Supreme Personality of Godhead with his effulgence of energy, Brahman, expanding unlimitedly. From that Brahman energy, the creation appears just as a cloud appears in sunshine. From the cloud comes rain, from the rain comes vegetation, and from the vegetation come fruits and flowers, which are the basis of subsistence for many other forms of life. Similarly, the effulgent bodily luster of the Supreme Lord is the cause of the creation of infinite universes. The Brahman effulgence is impersonal, but the cause of that energy is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. From him in his abode, the Vaikuntas, this Brahma Jyoti emanates. He is never impersonal. Such impersonalists cannot understand the source of the Brahman energy. They mistakenly choose to think this impersonal Brahman the ultimate or, or absolute goal. But as stated in the Upanishads, one has to penetrate the impersonal effulgence to see the face of the Supreme Lord. If one desires to reach the source of the sunshine, he has to tra travel through the sunshine to reach the sun and then meet the predominating deity there. The absolute truth is the Supreme Person Bhagavan. As Srimad Bhagavatam explains, Sat means effect, asat means cause, and param refers to the ultimate truth, which is transcendental to cause and effect. The cause of the creation is called the mahatattva, or total material energy, and its effect is the creation itself. But, but neither cause nor effect existed in the beginning. They emanated from the Supreme Personality of Godhead, as did the energy of time. This is stated in the Vedanta Sutra, Janmadya Selyata. The source of birth of the cosmic manifestation or Mahatattva is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. This is confirmed throughout Srimad Bhagavatam and the Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita 10.8, the Lord says, Aham Sarvasya Prabhava. I am the fountainhead of all emanations. The material cosmos being temporary is sometimes manifest and sometimes unmanifest, but its energy emanates from the absolute, Supreme Absolute Lord. Before the creation, there was neither cause nor effect, but the Supreme Personality of God had existed with his full opulence and energy. The word Paschadaham, the words Paschadaham indicate that the Lord exists after the dissolution of the cosmic manifestation. When the material world is dissolved, the Lord still exists personally in the Vaikuntas. During the creation, the Lord also exists as he is in the Vaikuntas, and he also exists as the super soul within the material universes. This is confirmed in the Brahma Samhita 537. Although he is perfectly and eternally present in Goloka Vrindavan, in Vaikuntha, he is nevertheless all-pervading, akilat mabhuta. The all-pervading feature of the Lord is called the Supersoul. In the Bhagavad Gita, it is said, ahang kritsnasya pravava. The cosmic manifestation is, is a display of the energy of the Supreme Lord. The material elements, earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence, and false ego display the inferior energy of the Lord and the living entities are his superior energy. Since the energy of the Lord is not different from him, 
In fact, everything that exists is Krishna in his impersonal feature. Sunshine, sunlight, and heat are not different from the sun, and yet simultaneously they are distinct energies of the sun. So similarly, the cosmic manifestation and the living entities are energies of the Lord, and they are considered to be simultaneously one with and different from him. The Lord therefore says, I am everything, because everything is his energy and is therefore non-different from him. Yovashishetasosmiham indicates that the Lord is the balance that exists after the dissolution of the creation. The spiritual manifestation never vanishes. It belongs to the internal energy of the Supreme Lord and exists eternally. When the external manifestation is withdrawn, the spiritual activities in Goloka and the rest of the Vaikuntas continue, unrestricted by material time, which has no existence in the spiritual world. Therefore, in the Bhagavad Gita 15.6, it is said, The abode from which no one returns to this material world is the supreme abode of the Lord. So this is important information because in order for us to point our attention in the right direction, we must have information of where we're going. Those uh, who are great souls walk in this world, but they are clear about the goal. They know the parampadam, the ultimate goal and resting place, that place where the Supreme Personality of Godhead resides eternally. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, He describes the, the material world as a place that is very difficult to understand. You can't see the beginning and you can't see the end and you can't see the form. So he describes the material world as Ashvata tree. It's a huge banyan tree. So a tree means, according to our acharyas, that it's here today and gone tomorrow. It's sometimes there and sometimes not there. And similarly, the material world is sometimes here and sometimes not here because it's manifest and then unmanifest. Therefore, Krishna gives this directive that you must uh, cut down this uh, strongly rooted tree by the weapon of uh, non-attachment. Asanga Shastrena. So Asanga Shastrena. Asanga means um, to, don't, to not identify yourself with it. Understand that this material world is not your home. Asanga Shastrena. And you can use that understanding as a weapon, a Shastra. So there's two words. Shastra and Shastra. So Shastra means the scriptures that uh, give us direction of how to cut our attachment to the material world. And Shastra means a sword or a physical weapon through which one goes into battle and, and, uh, and fights with the enemy. So one implication of, the, of these two words and their meanings is that 
unless we follow the Shastra, then we'll be afflicted by the Shastra or the weapon of the pains and of, of um, the material world afflicted upon us by the, the trident of our Maya Devi herself. And um, Gajendra in his prayers to the Lord says, it's very confusing. The situation in the material world is argued about endlessly. Some people say that you should embrace the world and get the most out of it you can, like Charvak Muni. He's one of the philosophers of India who indicate that since we're here in the material world and we have the opportunity, we should take advantage of it as much as possible and try to enjoy uh, to the greatest extent that you can. You'll find this philosophy either directly or indirectly taught in various places around the world. And for instance, the ways in which we get education in order to get a job and so forth, so that we can earn and be good consumers and so forth, has a very subtle implication that the goal of life is simply to get set up so that we can go on with the American dream and uh, own something, control something, uh, consume something, and so forth, while you can. And don't worry about death, because at death, it's everything's finished. Uh, and Gajendra goes on to say, some people say that the world's real, some say it's unreal, some say that you should take to the path of Nevriti Marg, which giving up the world, and some say you should take to the path of Pravriti Marg, or you should embrace the world and try to get as much out of it as you can. But then Gajendra con confirms, or he comes to the realization that because I can't understand myself what the material world is, where it's come from, or what its purpose is, therefore I will take the, the opinion of the great Acharyas. And that opinion is that this isn't your, your home. Don't try to stay here. You should uh, transfer yourself to the spiritual world, give up your attachment to the material world. This is parallel with Krishna's instructions in the Gita. Asanga, Shastrena, Dridhena, Chitva. So Chitva means to cut something down. And um, Dridhena means you should do it with great determination. You should have no doubt about it. Uh, otherwise, uh, Shukadeva Goswami says at the beginning of the Srimad Bhagavatam to Parikshit Maharaj, that people uh, see the world, but they don't see it. You're looking around, you think you're seeing, but what do you actually see? We're in a faulty state of consciousness. Have you ever had a dream where you uh, went to work and you were doing your work or you went to school and you were doing your, your schoolwork in school? Any uh, students here? Did you dream ever that you were in school taking a test? Well, then did you get any credit for it? Or did you get did you get overtime pay for your uh, working in your dream? No. What a waste! <laughs> and and similarly, this uh, waking consciousness that we're in and working, uh, endeavoring in various ways is also ultimately a waste unless one connects it to the ultimate goal of life, parampadam, going back to Godhead. So one should have this conception of life that I'm. Living in this world, Kamasya Nendriya Pritir Labu Jivetayavata, Jivasitatva Jignasya, Nartoyas Cheha Karmavi. I'm living in a balanced way so that I can inquire, so I can go on and get my bhajan going. You have to get your bhajan on. 
So Krishna goes on to say, Asanga Shastrena Jutena Chitva, Tat Padam Tat Parimargita Vyam. So Tat, you should know what Tat is. Tat is a pronoun, it means that. It's pointing to something. And what's it pointing to? Tat, that which is real, that which actually exists. It's the abode of the Supreme Personality of God. It's same as Om Tat Vishnu Paramam Param Sada. Tat, Tat, same. Om Tat Sat. What is real? What's that point that you should be focusing on? Tatapadam tat parimargita vyam means parimargita vyam means you should go to great lengths to go on this journey. Pack up your stuff. We're going back to God. <laughs> Get your stuff mentally packed and in order because every day counts on this journey. We have very little time, a hundred years maximum, to get out of this situation of in the temporary situation in the material world. So don't linger. Pack your stuff and get on that pari margitavyam. Get on the marg, and uh, go for it. It's a complete path back to God. Pari margitavyam, yasmin gata na nirvatanti buya tameva chadyam purusham. Prapadye, surrender to that supreme personality of God, from whom everything else has emanated. That's the source of everything. So you can take shelter there. Nowhere else you can take shelter. Uh, that's why uh, Shukadev Goswami describes the um, ways in which we try to find shelter in the material world as being fallible. We're taking shelter, he says, of fallible soldiers. Deha patra kalatradeshu atmasaini susatsapi. So he says, we think of the body, we think of our family members, we think of our country, we think of our money, bank balance as some kind of um, protection. He says, but uh, these are fallible soldiers, like the chokidar, who you pay for a whole three years every day. And then when the actual dacoit comes on the property, the chokidar runs away. I've seen this before. <laughs> Where'd the chokidar go? How'd the dacoit get in? Chokidar ran away when you need enough. <laughs> No offense to Chokidars all over the world. Some of them are very brave, but you know, you're not paying them that much that they're going to give up their life for you. So these fallible soldiers, the very when when it comes down to it, they can't save you. They they don't have the the guts to actually save you, and they don't have the power to save you. Only Krishna can. So he says, uh, uh, <clears throat> the materialistic person is not seeing things correctly. Yes, you're looking around. Yes, you see images, but you don't understand them. You don't know what the goal of life is. So try to understand that, and. Part of that uh, begins with understanding the source of everything. Where is it all coming from? And hear this verse, Ahami vasame vagre nanyad yat sarasat param pashyara aham tari tasya yovishishyeta sosmiham. It's one of the Chatur Shloki Bhagavatam, one of the four important nutshell verses of the Bhagavatam from which all the other verses emanate. And here it's described that everything's coming from an original source and that's krishna he's the origin he's the aham and we should be very articulate about this the more articulate you are about what the goal is the more you can reach the goal and if you have an amorphous goal you're in trouble 
just like in a strategic planning. If you don't start with the mission and the vision, if you don't know where you're going, then you're going to flounder and you're going to get mission creep. This whole material world and all our millions of lifetimes is basically mission creep gone awry. We've uh, got into a situation and we just keep trying various stopgap measures and we keep going further and far, further away. So when you get the human form of life, you have the opportunity to define your mission. So the Bhagavatam's helping us. It's saying, here is the target. Be very, very clear about it. Understand that your goal is a person. And the person is intelligent and has qualities and has shaktis and is telling you everything about it. And remember, that's what you want to uh, aim for. And if you can do that, if you can articulate it and say, Krishna is the Supreme Personality of God, and then you can make progress. Otherwise, any kind of wispy or amorphous or very unclear declaration of the goal of spiritual life makes it practically impossible to explain to others in a reasonable way what to speak of to oneself and uh, what to speak of actually going for something. It's sim you simply remain on the platform of the mind. And now we'll take a few questions in order to expand the subject matter and make it more uh, understandable. Now I'm going to pull up my um, uh, the Facebook uh, points. I missed them this morning, but now I'm on it. So here we go. Okay. We're ready now. Sudhir Madhava Prabhu, please go ahead. Hare Krishna Guru Maharaj. A reflection and a question. Um, in the beginning, Srila Prabhupada is saying um, in, in grammar, but he explained me. So, you don't you're going to have to write your question in the text box because your um, internet is not strong enough to maintain a uh, full sentence. And we're catching every fifth word, like jumping over the pond on different rocks. And so could you write it in the box? Because I really want to hear your realization and what your question is. Yes, I can't hear you. I do. Okay, sorry about that. Much, I have a question. Yes. When we say Brahma Jyoti, it is the effulgence that comes from the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So when I say Brahma Jyoti, this is coming straight from Golok Vrindavan, right? From the body of Krishna. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So when we talk of the spiritual abode and say that you get there and you never come back, we're talking about anything that's about the spiritual, that's into the spiritual sky. It could be Vaikuntha, it could be um, Ram's abode, it could be uh, Krishna's, it could be any of them. But, yeah. the Lord, but the Lord himself, Vishnu, is an extension of Krishna. And if he's, an, if he's an extension of Krishna, just like one candle is similar to another, should he also not be excluding this Brahma Jyoti? Yes. So there are many candles lighting the Brahma Jyoti out there. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a, a misnomer or a mistaken idea to think that there, there are two Krishnas. They're all one, but they're manifested in various ways. That's his mystic uh, potency. 
that he expands himself unlimitedly. It's all coming from one. So he, he's, the, he's the electricity generating center and then everyone else is the bulb. All his other expansions would just be lighting from there. Well, actually, each expansion is is uh, complete in itself. It has they have their own light departure. Even he, it's saying that versus that uh, there's one original candle, but all of them have the potency. It's not like the yogis who expand themselves and it's like a kind of a, a fake out. You know, you see all these images, but but actually they're not as potent. So that's Krishna's amazing potency that they all have the the same potency. But, you know, trying to search back and say, well, wait a minute, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, the example falls a little short because then we start to think in material terms through physics, you know, how to understand how, okay, there's a, a light source here and a light source there. It's all coming from one person, but it's divided into many, many forms that he's manifesting simultaneously. So this need for us to kind of, I've noticed a lot of times I hear a lot of questions about the very details and the particulars that are given in the Srimad Bhagavatam, exactly how far away, how deep is it, where the, where the planets are situated. But in the end, Guru Maharaj, every time we come to this understanding that we really can't understand. We just accept. So when Prichit Maharaj asks about the universe, uh, Shukadev Goswami says, I'll tell you what I can, but it's unlimited. Even the material universe what to speak of the spiritual world is inconceivable. So it's not against the, the um, protocol of devotees to ask about details. And you'll see Pariksit and, and Vidura and others ask all kinds of details. But the answers are always couched in this idea that, well, it's unlimited, but I'll tell you what I can. So it's not that, you know, otherwise, if we could circumscribe God and his energies, then he wouldn't be God, because that's the one of the definitions is that he's ananta, he's unlimited. So how are we going to come to the end of it? You'd be very disappointed if you could actually come up with a formula that would say, this is it. So this is what Radhika Raman was pointing out, is that, you know, we should come to that doorstep where the Supreme Personality of Godhead lives and then say, he's in there. We know him, you know, we know who he is, but now we can't understand him. I mean, he's unlimited. Uh, who can understand the, the unlimited? Even the unlimited himself can't understand his unlimited nature because he keeps expanding his po through his potencies. So how would, how would we be able to understand? But that's the right place to leave one's inconceivability as at the lotus feet of a person. And this is one of the points of the Bhagavatam is that if you come to this logical understanding that it's all coming from the original person and then you ascribe this um, inconceivability at that point, then you've come to the right place of uh, placing that uh, conception of inconceivability. So when I say Tatvam Pushan Aplafurino, please remove this coverage and I want to see you, will I see him the way I want to see him? What yes, no. Actually, in the mood of when one begins to develop a relationship with Krishna through. Uh, first associating with devotees and then following the process, uh, taking the, the mercy through the Guru Parampara, going through Anartandavriti, coming to Nishta and then Ruchi. Then there's a way in which within one's mind, there's, a, there's a, 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 an idea that I want to worship Krishna in this way. 
And Rupa Goswami explains that actually that's coming from Krishna, although I conceive of it as coming from myself. After all, we're parts and parcels of Krishna, so it's not uh, inconceivable that they could be coming, you know, there's a confluence of his desire and our desire. But the point is that it's based in service, that we want to serve Krishna in a particular way, and he wants to be served in a particular way, so he accommodates for the two that they meet in the middle, it's not one or the other. Thank you, Guru Maharaj. That was Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna Prabhu. Hare Krishna. I really love the point where you mentioned about the Shastra is used as a Shastra. Um, that's an amazing point. Never, never connected that before. <laughs> that, that's very nice. And um, I also was wondering when Manjula Kanta was asking about the cosmology and things like that, I always thought that, um, you know, just chanting and thinking about Krishna, why go in so much deep reading fifth canto, which we are half the thing you don't understand. I used to feel like that. But as a part of my Bhakti Vaibhava exam, when we did the whole fifth canto, um, I felt that I, it was, um, and my realization was deeper after understanding whatever little I understood from the fifth canto, that how great Krishna is and how minute I am. I, I felt that everything in Bhagavatam, even if you don't understand or you understand, it's, it's, it's so relishable because um, it actually gets you more closer to Krishna. So I just felt, I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Yes, the, this is one of the points Prabhupada makes in the introduction to the Bhagavad Gita, that we're interested in the battlefield, Kurukshetra, we're interested in the warriors there, the conch shells and all these things because they're related to Krishna. The Mayavadis will say, oh, we only like Krishna. We don't want to see, you know, we don't want to hear about all these other things. But we understand that Krishna and his energies are important. They're not separable. Uh, and this is a point Prabhupada makes in this purport that some try to separate Krishna from his energies and just say it's all one. There are no energies. So this is one of the major differences between the... Um, the fallacy of Mayavad and the actual truth, which is that, as Prophet pointed out in the purport, when there's a king, when you say king, you understand that there's a, a, an entourage that comes with a king. Where is there a king without a kingdom? Where is there a king without a queen? Where is there a king without, uh, you know, the uh, the people who you know play the trumpets and the panegyrists who glorify him when he comes out of the palace and and all of the ways in which he exerts his energy. There's no meaning to king in a, in a vacuum. And so similarly, when we say, when Krishna says a hum, and you can understand that he is the only one who can rightfully say a hum, because that's the original person. Everybody else is a relative person because we all emanate from Krishna and therefore are dependent upon him. And when we understand that Krishna means Krishna and his energies, then we can also be Krishna conscious even in the material world, as Krishna points out in various places in the Bhagavad Gita, like the seventh chapter, Krishna says, Aham bija prata pita, I'm the, the seed, uh, you know, I'm the seed. And he says, Rasoham apsakonte apravasmi shashishuryuryo. So he says, I'm the taste in water. And Prabhupada points out in his purport that when a devotee drinks water, He's feeling this sense of gratitude to Krishna, and he's thinking, wow, Krishna's so kind. He's given me this water to sustain my life, quench my thirst. 
and the taste, he's feeling, oh, that's Krishna. And Prabhashmi, Shashishuriyo, you know, the, the light of the sun, he's seeing, oh, that's Krishna. Because the energy and the energetic are one. At the same time, they're separate. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Please accept Muhammad obeisances, Maharaj. Hare Hare My obeisances to you and to all the Vaishnavas of ISB. So uh, I have a technical question regarding uh, studying and reciting the Shastras. And uh, specifically when we do it in the early morning. So like my understanding that there is a power, let's say, for uh, of purifying when we recite the shlokas in Sanskrit. And there is this, uh, uh, you know, purification happening on a mental level also when we read it in English and understand, so to say, the meaning of the Shastras. So uh, is this correct? And, you know, because I mean, it, uh, we notice the difference during the day on our mental state when we read the Bhagavatam in the early morning. So uh, I don't want to say like which is more important, but which is more important? Is it the Sanskrit or the English or both of them? Is it the sound vibration or the uh, you know mental understanding of the shloka? Well, they're both important. As you're surmising, they're both important. And uh, the ways that, uh, that there are there is potency in every syllable. This is pointed out in the Gita Mahatmya that uh, Lord Shiva is saying, if you, if you chant one verse, no, just half a verse, even one line, no, even one word, it has potency. And Sanatana Goswami says the same thing in the Brihat, it is um, uh, um, Krishna, anyway, I can't remember the name of the book. Uh, um, he says that every syllable of the Bhagavatam is pouring down nectar. So yeah, it's there. At the same time, we should, um, we should come to know what it means. Um, if we just uh, recite in a parrot-like way and we're not even thinking about the meaning and it's not invoking something, like recently um, a devotee wrote me and was talking about reading the introduction to the, to the Brahma Samhita and just setting the scene for that book and understanding uh, Brahma and having this revelation of seeing the spiritual world and understanding the, how the it's made of chintamani and so forth. And, and understanding that rather than just saying the Sanskrit evokes this uh, sense of connection to Krishna. So we should do both. And I find in a very practical way that um, either way you start, if you get some momentum, you're going to, uh, it's one way or another, you can um, start to get close to these verses and imbibe them. So if you start with the Sanskrit, then oftentimes you start to get curious. What was that? What was that verse about? I mean, it's really hard to read Prabhupada's books without seeing everything because he put everything in front of us. They're the words for word, the translation, then he gives all the commentaries. So it's not that you can just go into the books and totally isolate and only learn the Sanskrit. And Prabhupada wasn't so much in favor of that also. In Dallas at the Guru Kul in 1975, some of the kids came before him and they had learned many, many chapters of the Gita. So the teacher had them recite all these verses. And then Prabhupada asked one of the kids, what does it mean? And he said, I have no idea. <laughs> and Prabhupada said, that's not very good. You should learn that also. So both things are important. Thank you for asking as a, 
is a very practical, important question. Thank you. Okay, we have a few here coming in. Um, Sudhir Madhava said, reflection, Srila Prabhupada says, that Mayavadis are usually experts in grammar, but the very word aham refers to a person. I like that. Uh, Leka says, in chapter 9 of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells how he is present everywhere, yet he is aloof. Could you please elucidate on that? Doesn't he reciprocate back to us? What exactly is the context of Krishna staying aloof mean here? Well, um, in the ninth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, Krishna says, Maya tatamidam sarvam jagaravyakta murtina matstani starvabhutani nachaham teshvavastita avastita. He says that um, paradoxically, um, I'm here, but I'm not here. So Prabhupada gives the example of a, um, in that uh, verse, of a, uh, the owner of a company. Uh, he or she may have a huge company, and then there's all these factories, and there's workers, and the assembly line going, but the, that uh, owner is somewhere else. Maybe he's on an island somewhere, and all the energies are, are all working, but he's aloof sitting on the island, uh, looking at the uh, screen and counting all his money. So Krishna, Krishna creates everything. He puts everything into motion through his energies, but he's not directly involved in it, uh, even though they're his energies and he is non-different from his energies. So simultaneously one and different. Um, another question uh, Sudhir Madhava says, we heard that in order to reach the sun, one has to go through the sunshine. So a devotee has to advance through the Brahman realization in their journey. No. If you go to the Maha Mantra, as given by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then you surpass this uh, these stages of going through Brahman realization, then Paramatma, and then coming to the um, Bhagavan realization. This is also mentioned, by the way, in the Yoga Sutras by Patanjali, when he describes Ashtanga, you have to go through many stages in Ashtanga. Yam, Niyam are the two beginning stages, which means, first of all, you have to become uh, morally um, uh, integral. You have to have integrity morally. And then you also have to follow various restraints uh, no lying, no cheating, no illicit sex, things like that, in order to, to come to the sattva guna, in order to progress further and further. In the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali says, in your practice of Ashtanga Yoga, if you come to what he calls Ishvara Pranidhan, which means recognizing Ishvara, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and surrendering to him then you you bypass so many of these steps and it's a it's like a shortcut so similarly uh, the shortcut in uh, krishna consciousness um, is that uh, chanting hari krishna brings you right to krishna bhagavan um, this is a verse from Rupa Goswami's Namashtakam. He says, by the direct process of Krishna consciousness through chanting Hare Krishna, then uh, your prarabdha karma is destroyed. And uh, he said, those who go through the impersonal process, they may eventually get rid of their karma, but they still have to suffer it in this lifetime. 
to come to that point, but those who go directly through the process of bhakti, through chanting the holy name, can go directly there. Prabhupada says many pointed things about that, actually. Chitra Lekasaki, Hare Krishna. She says, um, how can I know if I am sincere in my spiritual life, not just taking shelter because of feeling the pinpricks of the complex material energy? So often I feel I am just doing what I know I should do with genuineness missing. Well, uh, whatever way you can, you can go uh, from whatever position you're in is okay. Do what you can with what you have. First of all, if you ask the question, how can I become sincere, then you're already sincere. I hate to break it to you, but <laughs> that's a fact. A prophet writes in a, in a letter that Satyadev Prabhu and I read many years ago and were amazed at. Prabhupada said, the desire to, uh, to, um, to be a pure devotee is synonymous with being a pure devotee. So there's this, uh, this way of touching that wire of, of sincerity to Krishna. If I'm just thinking, I wish I could be sincere, that's a form of sincerity. It's connected. It's just a matter of degrees of, of absorption. And uh, there, there, are, there are various motivations. Bhaktivinoda describes how there's a hierarchy of motivations. So the lowest is called, um, uh, uh, he says, the lowest of all is fear. I'm doing, I'm doing it out of fear because I'm afraid of the reaction in the material world. Well, that's legitimate. Um, you know, if you become intelligent and you understand, you have vivek or discrimination and you say, wow, I really took a wrong turn. My turn, I'm in the material world and I understand now that there are consequences. It's just like during this virus. You know, it's it's a invisible a force that's around us. All we do is hear about how it has an effect and people say wear a mask and stay six feet away, wash your hands all day long until they become dried and cracked up. And, um, and, you know, but then we become aware of the fact that there's cause and effect. And we start to see that, wow, you know, if I, if I go out into a crowd with no mask and, uh, or, you know, I just, I don't uh, take precautions, there's, there could be a dire result. And similarly, some people become aware that the material world, every move I make, actually, the subtle thoughts that I have there, these are karmic reactions and they're implicating me more in the material world so the child in the womb for example prays to the lord that i i'm in a really precarious situation there's a sense of fear there that i don't want to stay in the material world and i'm in a tough spot if one performs devotional service from this position that's okay this is uh, based on discrimination that i i've understood my situation most people are so foolish they don't even understand. They just keep driving with their with their eyes blindfolded and create more and more karma. That's the first level of motivation. The next level of motivation is called prospect. What am I going to get? <laughs> so, you know, there's this sense that uh, you know, well, I want something out of this, so I'm I'm doing it, but I want to see what I get in return. Well. Shukadeva Goswami says, Akama sarvakamova, mokshakama udaradi tivrena bhakti yogena yajeta purusham param. So what? 
you might want something. Dhruva Maharaj wanted something, and the Bhagavatam says he's a great soul. Krishna says it also. He says, Chatur Vida Bhajante Mam Jana Sukritino Arjuna Arto Jignasa Artarti Gyanicha Bharatarshaba. Four kinds of people approach me with different motivations. Some want wealth, some want to get free from miseries, some are uh, Ganis, and others, their knowledge of the absolute truth. But all of them, he says, uh, are pious souls. And Bhagavatam, Shukadeva Goswami says, so what? You're motivated, just at least approach Krishna. Prabhupada tells a story. He says there was this thief, and he had these habits, you know, of stealing all the time. He just couldn't get it out of his system. But he became a devotee, and he joined the, uh, the Yatra. And they were going on pilgrimage, so they stopped in one place. And that night, he woke up at midnight, and he said, i got to steal something. I can't stand it anymore. But he thought, I don't want to get the uh, reaction. So he went around to all the rooms where all the pilgrims were staying, and he took the luggage out, and then he moved one person's bag to another person's room and another person's bag into another room. And when everyone woke up, they said, where's all my stuff? I got the wrong bags here. And he admitted, he said, I'm a thief, but I... Uh, I couldn't steal your stuff, but I had to do something. So I moved everything around. And so, you know, different kinds of people come to Krishna consciousness with different motivations. But uh, because they're coming to Krishna, they get purified. Above prospect, there's duty. And I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. And this is in the mode of goodness, sattvagun. But then the highest motivation is love. And this is above sattvagun. It's spontaneous that I, I just love Krishna. So I'm, I'm doing it because uh, I love him. So any way that one is motivated to move forward in Krishna consciousness, uh, take that. And at the same time, uh, keep the prayer going to let me purify my desire and let me continue to be uh, more and more sincere as I go forward. Alex said to everyone, can you please speak more about Tivrena Bhakti? Uh, Tivrena Bhakti is described Anyabilashita Shunyam Jnana Karma Nyanavratam Anukulyena Krishnanu Shilanam Bhakti Rutama. So there's the process of devotional service is defined in in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu by Srila Rupa Goswami, and he says that the pure devotional service or Tivrena Bhakti is Bhakti that doesn't, uh, in which one doesn't feel I need to depend on any other method. I'm simply uh, depending on uh, the process of devotion, pure devotional service, beginning with Shravanam, Kirtanam, and going on Vishnu, Smaranam, Padasavanam, Archanam, Bandhanam, Dasyam, Sakyam, Atmani, Vedanam. And one is developing this kind of sense that ashrada shabde vishras kohe sudhidadnashchoy krishna krishna bhakti koile sarva karma kritahoy there's an abiding faith that uh, if i just do this if i give myself to this direct process of devotional service iti pumsarti pita vishnu bhaktis chen navalakshana navalakshana bhakti these nine processes and I'm deciding ahead of time, I'm doing it just to please Krishna. <laughs> then um, this is uh, Tivrena Bhakti, that I, I don't need any other thing to, um, to support me. And so I know everything else is done. I don't miss anything else. 
and I give my full attention to this, uh, boiling down to the five most potent, potent forms of, of devotional service, living in the Dham, chanting Hare Krishna, associating with devotees, worshiping the deities, chanting Hare Krishna. And I know that if I stick to these, no matter what else is happening in my life, I, I'll, uh, I'll be on the right track and Krishna, I'll be connected to Krishna favorably. So this, this is just a, a thumbnail sketch of Tivrena Bhakti. And Bashar says, for one who's serious in advancing and spreading the messages of Lord Chaitanya, how important is it to memorize shlokas, either those who give instructions or Shastra in a prayer mood? Very important. You should back up what you say with Shastra. Uh, you may not know the whole verse and be very eloquent, but you should know where it is at least and be able to refer to it. Some people have, uh, you know, some people can automatically play music uh, when they're born and they know, and other people can't, but they, they're articulate in another way. Some people, shlokas just flow through their brains and they're able to pronounce them and all kinds of things according to their culture, their birth, their brain. But you should know the Shastra. You should know where things are, what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, what the Nectar Devotion says. There's only a few books. And so, uh, you know, if you learn those well, then you'll have a basic understanding of uh, Vaishnava philosophy, which is really important for spreading Krishna consciousness because you have to know what you're talking about. Uh, and not only for yourself to have faith in the process, so it's not niyamagraha, not just doing it because everyone else is doing it. I'm not doing it because it sounds like a good idea. I have a clear idea <laughs> of why it makes sense. And also, if you want to explain it to other people, you should be able to refer to Shastra. Because shruti smriti paranadi pantra triki vidimbina aikantiki harer bhakti rupata yaiva kalpate. You perform devotional service that's not in accord with the Shruti, Smriti, Panchakriviti, and so forth, it becomes a disturbance to society. And a subtle disturbance to society is when people take to devotional service and they're not precise in uh, describing uh, why they're doing something or understand why they're doing something. And um, there are many ways in which uh, we can um, start adding things in that uh, didn't come from our sampradaya or omitting things and not knowing why we should do why we're doing it so we're in a particular sampradaya we're following down in the footsteps of uh, sri chaitanya mahaprabhu and his uh, his disciples enumerated the teachings and elaborated upon the teachings of chaitanya mahaprabhu specifically so that we could take advantage of them and so uh one of the distinctions between a, a serious and a progressive devotee is that he or she knows the teachings of the Goswamis. And then those who are Sahajas, they, you know, the, I don't need all these Shastras. I just feel it, you know, and I'm chanting always in my heart and so forth. And uh, this is um, not the mood of uh, Prabhupada for sure. And, he started Bhagavatam classes and he, he wanted the devotees to sit around and discuss. In fact, when I joined Krishna Conscious, we had five classes a day, a day, five classes. There's not just Bhagavatam class. We had Krishna book, we had Nectar Devotion, we had TLC. We had, 
It was all day long. We'd stop and have a class, have another class, have another class. Prabhupada wanted us to read the books and understand them very clearly. At the same time, if somebody um, is doing practical devotional service, doesn't have a high propensity for memorizing shlokas and uh, hearing so much philosophy, that person will also advance in devotional service. But we should, um, you know, through that method of hearing uh, from others who are speaking in detail about the philosophy, such a person will imbibe, not only imbibe the philosophy, but will real it, re realize it based on yasya devi para bhaktir yata devi tathagoro tasyaite katita hyarta prakashanti mahatmana. If you have firm faith in Krishna and in the Guru, then when you perform your devotional service, you'll have some understanding of the import of Vedic knowledge. Uh, so it's not that somebody who's uh, more inclined towards practical devotional service is going to be bereft, but such a person should also hear. Prabhupada mentions in the eighth canto of Bhagavatam that Vedic means that people would get together before they go to work and hear, and after they come back from their work in the agricultural fields, then they would sit down and they would hear Bhagavatam again before going to sleep, not watching. Um, I don't know what the shows are these days. When I grew up, it was Peyton Place or something like that. As the world turns, uh, uh, you know, you have to hear Bhagavatam. You have to hear about Prachina Barishat. You have to hear about uh, uh, Krishna's pastimes and Narada's liberating uh, Nalakuvera and Mani Griva. And all these details have to go in the ear. Because once they go in, even if you're not memorizing everything and knowing and learning all the shlokas, then that will go in and it'll be effective. Okay, off my soapbox. Let me see what else there is. Uh, I'm moving over here to Facebook. Divyanand Prabhu says, in relation to all kinds of people coming to Krishna and being purified, I thought of below one verse from Bhagavatam. Akama Sarvakamava, perfect. You're right on the vein, Divyanand. Sringara Ras Devidasi says, Thanks for joining us. I heard Radhika Raman Prabhu in his lecture that when Prabhupada writes about Mayavadis, they're actually meant for our own purification. While I can notice many impurities in my own heart, but some I am not able to relate to. So does it mean that I have all of them, but just unaware of those? How do we understand these statements in perspective? When Prabhupada writes about Mayavadis, they're actually meant for our own purification. Well, I could just say in a general way, I give an example, when you start to uh, clean up your, um, your room, for instance, I've been sitting in this room for the last three months, last time I checked, and um, trying to organize things in here. And uh, it's a pretty unlimited project. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. And, you know, first, yeah, it's pretty organized. It looks pretty good. But then when I start going through drawers and uh, cabinets and things like that, it goes, it telescopes out and it's more and more and more. So in a similar way, when we actually start looking into uh, an Arta Navriti and being serious about it, like uh, devotees, Raghunath Das Goswami wrote a whole book about it, about what an Arta Navriti means and what the subtleties are that we should be looking for. It, it really gets more and more subtle. And you realize th that, um, you know, there's a lot of work to do here. So 
you clean the room and then you know when i clean the room and then if i really do a good cleaning i get on the floor and i start looking at the corners and i think wow there's dust down there way in the corner it's behind things uh, so if you want to do a, a thorough cleaning, you have to follow Lord Chaitanya's um, lead in cleaning the Gudicha temple. He did it three times, cleaning the, the temple, and then he cleaned outside so nothing got dragged back in. <laughs> so you have to be meticulous. And um, let's see, Rajesh Prabhu, do we get a spiritual body in Goloka Vrindavan? Yes, you do. You get a spiritual body. That's all there is in the spiritual world, spiritual bodies. You'll know, you'll see a very, um, if you want a very uh, clear um, description of the ways in which uh, devotees get a spiritual body in the Brihat Bhagavatamrita, you can uh, read uh, uh, several passages about um, Gopal Kumar and his disciple uh, meeting Krishna in the forest. But before they do, they notice that their bodies have changed. They're, they're not the same material body, but they've changed into spiritual bodies. Uh, the material body is just a, a temporary uh, vehicle that we've inhabited. It's, it's uh, completely different from our real nature. It's not even made of the same substance we are. Uh, we'll f spiritual body is, um, is altogether natural. Uh, and that, that will come in, in due course of time by the practice of devotional service. After all, how can you do eternal devotional service to the Lord without a, a, an eternal body? Because these bodies fall apart and it's really hard to do service 24 hours a day, isn't it? You got to sleep, got to eat, got to eliminate all these types of things. What a, what a hassle. Sukanti Gorangi said, if you have an amorphous goal, you're in trouble. Define your mission. Yes. Vamshuli Prabhu said, sometimes it's easy to become cold or artificially detached while trying to live in this world, but not be of it. How to overcome this situation? In other words, how to be detached truly without showing off negativity on our immediate circle. This is, uh, um, comes through realization and uh, there may be a um, misunderstanding of what detachment actually means. So we have to look into what non-attachment means. There is no such thing as um, non-attachment for the soul. It's a misnomer. We're always attached. First of all, we're always active and interested. As, as soon as we lose interest in something, as soon as we lose our ambition, we're not living beings, but we're always living beings. It may be artificially suppressed for some time due to the mode of ignorance, but it will spring back as soon as we're given the opportunity to move out of that mode of ignorance. So that's our eternal position. And there's no time at which we're, we're not attached. If we take to uh, the position of, of non-attachment in... Um, in a vacuum, uh, it's artificial and will snap back to our attachment eventually. That's why the Bhagavatam says, Whatever kind of liberation from uh, the 
material world you think you've attained by your own endeavors, by uh, artificial detachment and so forth, uh, will snap right back. <laughs> if you haven't attained attachment to Krishna. And so it's not really about being uh, detached, but it's about transferring our attachment to the right place. And when we do that and we understand yukta vairagya or utilizing everything in Krishna's service and for his pleasure, then we, we uh, develop a kind of um, detachment that also accommodates our movement through the material world in a practical way. In other words, uh, 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 for example, let's just say that um, you're a family person and you're living with others. So if you have a clear idea that uh, all of these family members are actually parts and parcels of Krishna, and um, my duty is to show a good example, to help them also develop Krishna consciousness, and that uh, these people are dear to Krishna and so forth, then we would think in ways in which to accommodate them both uh, uh, in their body uh, and minds and spirits as at the same time. So the Bhagavatam seventh canto on Varnashrama says for a grahasta, uh, let's just say a grahasta uh, man who's living in a family, it says, Bhagavatam says, Narda is speaking, that if such a person becomes cold and indifferent to his family members as a, a means of showing detachment, that uh, they won't be able to survive the, because they depend on the, the affection and the attention and appreciation on, on even a, a mental or bodily level that that person will provide uh, just as much as they depend on food. And so you wouldn't starve them and not give them food because we're going to be detached now. That's an artificial understanding. Therefore, a person should balance in the world and do one's duty understanding that people have particular needs that have to be fulfilled. I was thinking about this the other day. You know the this um, uh, hierarchy of needs? I believe, is it... Uh, I think it's Maslow. Maslow. Yeah, Maslow. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I was driving home from somewhere believe it or not, first time I've been in my car for a long time. And uh, I was very, very hungry. And then I, I was thinking that, um, you know, if you're very hungry or there's some bodily urge that's so strong, like hunger or you're really, really tired or something like that, it's it, the first thing you think of is eating. It's not, you know, chanting or something like that. In a similar uh, way, in a systemic way, our lives have to have some basis of a satisfaction in order for us to practice Krishna consciousness. Jivasya tattva jignasya means you have to live in such a way that you're balanced so that you can inquire about Krishna. So detachment in a family setting doesn't mean that all of a sudden you become a, a tough guy and you tell everybody, you know, uh, I don't love you anymore because I'm such a, a renunciate. That, that's a artificial. It won't work. But you should understand that um, uh, there's a way to integrate yourself into the world, into your family, uh, in, 
in, in a, a practical way so that everyone is satisfied and it's a natural uh, state of life and at the same time cultivate Krishna consciousness. So both things have to go on and uh, it's, it's more internal than it is external. And if you're very demonstrative about renunciation and enforce it upon others, it won't go off very well. I'm going to read your question one more time to make sure I answered it. Sometimes it's easy to become cold and artificially detached while trying to live in this world, but not be of it. How to overcome this situation. Um, in other words, how to be detached truly without it showing off negatively on our immediate circle. Um, one of the ways is to, to really um, remember what the Bhagavatam says about artificial detachment and how it's not beneficial. So first of all, give your permission, give yourself permission to interact with people because it does Bhagavatam doesn't say that you should simply become artificially detached. But at the same time, uh, you have to, in the environment of family members, have some kind of basis uh, through which you all connect to Krishna. And that was mentioned earlier, that if you're in a family situation and you hear and chant together, then there's a natural way in which that vibration infuses the, the family relationships and devotees start to develop on their own. It's not artificial. It happens systemically. Uh, okay. Oh, Dennis and Karina about memorizing. I would like to share this idea. Um, maybe you like it. I'm looking at the idea. How to remember anything forever ish <laughs> in Greek mythology. Nemosi, I can't pronounce Greek, but he says, um, the goddess of memory was the mother of the muses, the goddess of inspiration. So how's memory and inspiration doing in schools? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, not only are common practices like lectures, cramming and rereading boring science has shown they don't even work well. But what if I said that there's a way to learn that's evidence-based and fun. What if I say there's a memory card game you can play for 20 minutes a day to store anything you choose into long-term memory forever until you die? And the name of this game is, now you really got my attention, Spaced Repetition, and, that's, and it's awesome. I started using Spaced Repetition earlier this year to learn French. In two months, I learned more words than I did in two years of high school French classes. Since then, I used space repetition to remember all sorts of things, ukulele, computer, friends' birthdays, anything interesting. And this little memory card game became a core part of my life. In short, space repetition equals testing plus time. Test, you test yourself on a fact repeatedly, spacing out your repetitions over time, but won't this take forever? Ah, as we'll, as we'll see later, there's a trick. Spaced repetition is free, evidence-based, and so simple, you can do it with a shoebox. So what's the catch? Why isn't everybody already doing spaced repetition? And she says, Nikki, shut up. 
Well, the catch is that making any new habit is hard, especially a weird habit like spaced repetition. That's why I made this badly drawn interactive comment, comic. Um, in this comic on spaced repetition, I'll show you why it works, how it works, and help you get started with it today. Okay, there's a lot more I see coming. I I think this is, um, oh, let's see the formula. I think maybe, I didn't want to go down forever, but let's see, spaced repetition. Try to recall, then flip the cards. Okay, well, if anybody wants to go back and look at the rest of it, I think it's a good idea. Spaced repetition. Uh, I think Vrinda's doing that. She's been writing things on cards and carrying them around with her and it's something I've always noticed that if I'm learning a verse, um, then if I try to remember it and I test myself on it, I'll notice where there are gaps. And then if I go back and look at it again in different circumstances over time, that's what starts to fill in the gaps. Let's ask Vrinda if she's doing that with her cards. Where is she? Yeah, she's not in this meeting, I think. Oh, okay. She was there. I, she was there for Joppa, so that's why I was thinking she was there. Okay, spaced repetitions. There's so many questions coming out now that it's hard to know where to go. Nahush Joshi, if I may ask a question, I'm trying to keep a spiritual journal so I can track and help make progress in Krishna consciousness. Can I ask what topics or subjects should I cover in maintaining a journal in order to make progress? in a steady and progressive ways. Um, that's a big topic, but a few, a few are um, daily sadhana, and then you can make goals in those different categories. Goals for your chanting, goals for your reading are two very important things so that you maintain a steady daily practice. Let's go back to the purports because I'm um, feeling overwhelmed by so many questions and I want to hear a little more from Prabhupada's voice. So the next verse, In the previous verse, okay, what appears to be truth without me is certainly my illusory energy for nothing can exist without me. It is like a reflection of a real light in the shadows. For in the light, there are neither shadows nor reflections. Purport. One second. I have to move this thing. In the previous verse, the absolute truth and its nature have been explained. One must also understand the relative truth to actually know the absolute. The relative truth, which is called maya, or material nature, is explained here. Maya has no independent existence. One who is less intelligent is captivated by the wonderful activities of maya. But he does not understand that behind these activities is the direction of the Supreme Lord. In the Bhagavad Gita 9.10, it is said, prakriti suyate <clears throat> 
The material nature is working and producing moving and non-moving beings only by the supervision of Krishna. The real nature of Maya, the illusory existence of the material manifestation, is clearly explained in Srimad Bhagavatam. The absolute truth is substance, and the relative truth depends upon its relationship with the absolute forest existence. Maya means energy. Therefore, the relative truth is explained to be the energy of the absolute truth, since it is difficult to understand the distinction between the absolute and relative truths. An analogy can be given for clarification. The absolute truth can be compared to the sun, which is appreciated in terms of two relative truths, reflection and darkness. Darkness is the absence of sunshine and a reflection is a projection of sunlight into darkness. Neither darkness nor reflection has an independent existence. Darkness comes when the sunshine is blocked. For example, if one stands facing the sun, his back will be in darkness. Since darkness stands in the absence of the sun, it is therefore relative to the sun. The spiritual world is compared to the real sunshine and the material world is compared to the dark regions where the sun is not visible. When the material manifestation appears, very wonderful, this is due to a perverted reflection of the supreme sunshine, the absolute truth, as confirmed in the Vedanta Sutra. Whatever one can see here has its substance in the absolute. As darkness is situated far away from the sun, so the material world is also far away from the spiritual world. The Vedic literature directs us not to be captivated by the dark regions, tama, but to try to reach the shining regions of the absolute, yogi-dham. The spiritual world is brightly illuminated, but the material world is wrapped in darkness. In the material world, sunshine, moonshine, or different kinds of artificial light are required to dispel darkness, especially at night, for by nature the material world is dark. Therefore, the Supreme Lord has arranged for sunshine and moonshine. But in his abode, as described in the Bhagavad Gita 15.6, there is no necessity for lighting by sunshine, moonshine, or electricity, because everything is self-effulgent. That which is relative, temporary, and far away from the absolute truth is called maya, or ignorance. This illusion is exhibited in two ways, as explained in the Bhagavad Gita. The inferior illusion is inert matter, and the superior illusion is the living entity. The living entities are called illusory in this context only because they are implicated in the illusory structures and activities of the material world. Actually, the living entities are not illusory, for they are parts of the superior energy of the Supreme Lord and do not have to be covered by maya if they do not want to be so. The actions are of the living entities in the spiritual kingdom are not illusory. They are the actual eternal activities of liberated souls. Uh, I just want to add a little bit more to my answer to Vamshuli Prabhu about artificial renounce, renunciation. I was thinking about it for a second there. And that is that um, artificial 
really means that which is detached from the purpose of serving Krishna. As in this verse we just heard, Ritertam yet pratieta na pratieta chapmani tadvidyara manomayam yatabhasu yutatama. When things are detached from uh, Krishna and we attach to Krishna through service, then there's darkness and there's artificiality. So in the sense of renunciation, if we're re renouncing for any other purpose except uh, in our, incidentally, in our service to Krishna, then it becomes artificial renunciation. It won't last, and nor will it have a, the desired effect. And Prabhupada says elsewhere that anything done artificially will not have the desired effect. Keep that in mind. So in a family context, it's more, more effective to think in terms of how can I be of the best service here spiritually rather than to think how can I be detached from the family. That's artificial. Your family is, uh, they're parts and parcels of Krishna. Even if they're not devotees, they're parts and parcels of Krishna. So you should think how can I serve them in the best possible way? And if that's your motive and you're thinking of serving Krishna, then your detachment will be effective and it will have the result that you're looking for. Otherwise it becomes cold, calculated, and there's darkness because it's not connected to the idea of service to Krishna. So devotional service is immediately effective because it's like turning on a light. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu taught this verse uh, to Sanatana Goswami in which he says uh, that Krishna Surya Sama Maya Haya Andakaran. That where there's uh, Krishna, there's light. And where there's no Krishna, there's darkness. Therefore, what's the formula? It's too simple. <laughs> Bring Krishna. So in all circumstances, see the connection to Krishna. And the way to connect to Krishna is through service. Be thinking always, how can I serve Krishna in this circumstance? And if you think like that, then the light comes on. Let's see if there's any last questions from the Zoom room. I'm sorry? I was just reminded of um, Kunti's prayers where she was talking about how uh, she wants to be detached from Krishnis and things. So I was very confused at that point of time that why is she saying she has to be detached? Um, sorry. Um, but I was just thinking that she said that she wants to be detached to them because on the base, on the base of bodily concept, but she wants to be attached to them because they are part of Krishna. I, when I first read that, I was like so confused. Why should she wants to be detached? But you know, when I understood the real meaning, then I, so that way we can be attached and detached at the same time. I just wanted to add that. Yes, deha pashabinam chindi. You know, so she's, she it's a very subtle differentiation. She wants to cut that uh, attachment, that affection that's based on bodily identification. And but not that it, not uh, that we cut all attachment, just that part where the sentiment isn't based on service to Krishna. And uh, someone might, and there's no coldness in there. Actually, relationships that are based on Krishna, even you know, husband, wife, uh, parents, children, they're much much deeper. Uh, you know, you may say, oh, with love and thanksgiving, and you know, getting together for all these things, you know. Hey, I worked in the airport for years and I saw people going home for Thanksgiving and it <laughs> so many people dreaded going to see their parents, their family. It's a very traumatic experience. Uh, you know, 
visiting people. And when you finally get there, it's very superficial because it's based on false ego. You know, oftentimes children are disappointed. They go to see their parents, trying to impress them. You know, I just got a degree or whatever it is. And, you know, maybe the parents are envious of them. They're like, why'd you get a degree? And, you know, I never got one. Why'd you have to get one? On the material platform, there's unlimited uh, room for uh, discord and actual non-appreciation. But if it's based on Krishna consciousness, then it's it's a much, much deeper relationship. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a, that's a pivotal verse in understanding this. There's another one in the fifth uh, chapter of the uh, fifth canto of the Bhagavatam in which Rishabhadev says that, you know, the householders are, they work together with family members, but uh, their mentality is that we're, we're doing this for a higher cause and therefore they're perfectly situated. Maharaj. Yes. Dhanavath Pranam, just a quick Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Well, um, isn't that a colorful uh, household you live in? It's very oh, beautiful. It's a nice color coordination, light coming through, green plants. How nice. Please go ahead, Prabhu. Uh, Maharaj, I've been realizing, like, it's a very important topic of, you know, attachment versus detachment. So what's helping me as well is um, working in material life, by being attached to spiritual life means attached in spiritual plane while working detached in the material plane. So that's kind of helping me through this process and um, kind of not get affected. Trying to, of course, I'm uh, still learning through this process, but kind of helping me and giving me some positive outcomes out of it. Like continuously thinking and reminding myself of that stay attached to the spiritual plane while executing my job in the material place, right? Does that make, does that make sense, Maharaj? Or? Sure. So in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna gives this advice, tasmat sarveshu kaleshu mama nusmara yujicha mayarpita manobhurya mami vaishyasya samshaya. He's telling Arjuna, you got to do your duty as a warrior. So that's his job. He said, but at the same time, you should think of me. And in the purport, Prabhupada says, so everyone has to work. And how are you going to remember Krishna at the same time? He said, you have to chant Hare Krishna. That part should be there in your life. And then um, Krishna says later in the Gita, or earlier, actually, he says, Brahmanyadaya karmani sangam tyakva kurotiya lipite nasapapena padma patram ivambasa. Even though you're in the world, just like a lotus is in the water, if you're, if you're offering whatever you're doing to Krishna, in other words, the result is coming, but you're saying, this isn't for me, this is for Krishna, and you're, you're giving the result to Krishna, then uh, he said, you're not touched. You don't get that karma that everybody else does. You're not um, being... Uh, contaminated by it. So we have to work in the world. We have to use our senses and so forth. And we have different propensities. And if we don't engage in those propensities, then we're going to be artificially restrained. So we need to do that. But at the same time, remember Krishna. So one of the best ways is to offer the result to Krishna. And whatever we get in material life, for instance, at home, we need to have a deity. 
And then we offer the house, the money, everything. It belongs to the deity, the food. If you're growing food, uh, uh, then you bring it in and you offer it to Krishna first. And you only take the prasad. And then whatever money, you know, it's, it's not simply for hoarding, but it's actually to use so that you can engage in Krishna's service and you should give a portion of it to Krishna. Uh, you know, every month something should go out that uh, keeps you uh, in that clear understanding that it, this isn't just for me. And it's coming from Krishna anyway, so I should depend on him by giving it to him also. So these are very practical matters. Thank you for bringing it up. Good to see you. Hare Krishna. Not